This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Zen Fox, instructor at the School of Interdisciplinary Science, McMaster University, Canada. His book, Better Posters, Plan, Design, and Present an Academic Poster, was published by Pelagic Publishing in 2021. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? It's the question on which every act of visual communication rides. And in that respect, visual communication is no different, say, than verbal communication. Are you hearing what I'm hearing? Or if the verb verbal communication is in print, are you reading what I'm reading? Communication has this particular trouble about it. Basically, that the message has got to be conveyed. And since conveyance is possible only through some sort of medium, the trouble of communication pretty much always comes down to this. Is the communicator handling the medium properly? The answer here is all too often that the communicator isn't. Isn't handling the medium all that well, hasn't considered the medium because the communicator has considered really only the subject matter, in fact, hasn't even recognized just how essentially that subject matter is really and truly a message, has not, to put it plainly, has not given enough effort or has not given the right kind of effort to the trouble of making the medium work for the message. Because that, in a word, is what communication is about, messaging. Or, in a few words, it's about the act of passing messages straight on through a medium, optimized to this purpose so that communication comes off. Because really, communication is a kind of performance, an act of showing and the attendant act of watching. Are you showing your audience the right words, the right gestures, or our focus of today's interview, the right images? Because if you aren't, they won't be watching, or at least not watching the thing that you want them to, because essentially they can't see it. Here is Zen Fox on the topic in his own words. What determines interest for a poster viewer is probably going to be that person's assessment of relevance. What people deem to be relevant is more likely to be shared on social social media, for instance. What someone considers relevant will vary from person to person, but there are two factors that make information relevant. It helps you generate new conclusions that matter to you, and it's easy for you to get the information. That last part is crucial because it is a reminder that relevance isn't a fixed, unchanging property of information. It bears repeating. The amount of effort that people need to put into getting information changes its relevance for them. If it's too hard, people will give up and brand that information as irrelevant. Even when explicitly searching for information that they want, i.e. that they deem relevant to them on the face of it, people follow the principle of least effort. Not everyone will read all the poster abstracts in advance if it takes less effort to walk through the hallway and browse. 
it is a critical that you make it as easy as possible for people to get the information that will help them have those insights. That is Zen Fox in his book, How uh, Better Posters. This is Zen Fox on scholarly communication. Hi, Zen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you today. The two little phrases in what I just read from your book there that really caught my attention were relevance is an affixed, unchanging property of information. And the second one was that principle of least effort. And this isn't really about, clearly not about scientists who are lazy or less good at doing research. I mean, obviously it's not because, I mean, although there are lazy people, when a person's being a scientist, they're not really being lazy. But I mean, really more to the point, anyone investing the effort and the time that every scientist does in their research, they really and truly want to find that relevant work. So, I mean, your conclusion to me is definitely very sound. Relevance is a shifting quality, a property of a person's research that will not remain constant, a feature that you create through your findings in the communication. And I'm so glad that you picked up on that particular quote because it's been a while since I had put that onto paper, so to speak. And I hadn't thought about it for a while, but I'm just reminded of how much I really like that part of the book. And the idea that if you make things too hard, people want to be efficient and they will just stop. And it's absolutely the case that people want to be efficient. They want to use their time well. And as a communicator, you can facilitate that or you can impede that. And it's always better to make it easier for your intended audience rather than not. And I suppose, I mean, we might as well start on the big abstract level. We have lots of details that I want to get into, certainly with your book that is a, a visual book and a design book. But just to, to tease out this idea a little bit more, um, I, I really find it fascinating the way that you uh, make it clear that, you know, relevance is something that you create and you, you create it. I mean, unless I'm, I'm misreading this idea, you create it in the communication. And, and, the, and the flip side of that is it is created by your audience. And I don't think that there's lots of, you know, students of science, for instance, out here who, uh, who immediately view the information in their field that way. Yes, I think that there is an internal relevance for an audience member. So if you have a particular research field that you are in professionally, there's certain topics that are going to be initially more relevant to you than others. Um, in my particular case, a lot of my research is in biology. So right off the top, something in the biological sciences is probably going to be more relevant to me than something in chemistry. And that's probably going to be more relevant to me potentially than something in physics or mathematics. So there's sort of that initial layer that everybody has of assessing, is this relevant to me or not? But then there's that secondary layer of how hard are you making me work for that? <laughs> I want to know that. And if it is the case that it is so difficult to extract that information, it will be the case that, you know, that how I view that as relevant is going to be going down over time because, and again, there's that interaction, right? If there's something that you can see right off the top, in my case, it's something in the biological sciences, maybe in a species I've studied, I'm willing to put in more effort in order to find that information than if it's something which is maybe peripheral to it. So it's very much a shifting uh, scale, so to speak, of how close is it to my interest right now? And how hard is it going to be for me to get that? And so even if it's something which I am deeply, deeply interested in, if it's really, really obscure, even at that point, I'm going to probably start de deeming it not relevant to me and that my time can be better spent elsewhere. 
Yeah, and I, I think one way perhaps to formulate it for uh, people who are still students or early career researchers and who aren't so comfortable with this idea that you know communication is so at the center of what it is that they're doing in their science. I mean, you just, it, 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 obviously, if you're in a PhD or if you've just finished one, you've been so deep in your studies that you see all the biology, for example, and you don't necessarily see the communication. But I mean, I think this relevance aspect is, is, is really key because first off, you have to imagine the other researchers who are looking at your material are just as deep in it as you are. And I often say to the people I help write, um, and so much of your book resonates with um, communication and writing, that you have to make your thinking their thinking. So it's like this, this idea that, as you were saying, you're interested, but it should click with you, means that you haven't given it the image or the expression that is their thinking. Yes. And... I think that is absolutely the case that uh, you want that um, resonance, for lack of a better term. And I know that I, I hesitate to use that because it sounds so much like relevance to what we've just been talking about. But no, um, the, the idea of getting somebody on the same page with you in some cases is going to be easier, in some cases it's going to be harder. But you that is the thing that you you have to do and this is why communication is an absolutely core skill on top of the content um and i think that for a long time in training you know content has been king and i think we are seeing a shift now that increasingly people are realizing the importance of the communication. Now, obviously, for most people in academia, that communication is primarily writing in terms of publications and everything else. So the most of the training in communication is in that sense of how are you going to communicate on the written page? And I know that that is your field of English for academic purposes. Uh, and I think that one of the ways I would like to see the field develop is to be thinking not just in terms of the English for academic purposes, but for graphics for academic purposes as well. That's wonderful. I, I And I would wholeheartedly welcome <laughs> the partner of graphic. I, I like the name of it too, graphics. for We have EAP, now we've got a GAP. <laughs> Gap. <laughs> um, it, yeah. And, it, and, you know, I had a former guest on, um, John Meesey, also in the biological sciences. And uh, he's very much interested in mentoring and in communication, um, writing, uh, PhDs or research articles. He's got guides out on these. Um, and I mean, we came to the consensus that it, it is necessary to increase the training and communication skills. I would have to also plea even in writing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he made, he made also the very astute remark that there is a lot that a student needs to do by the time they become a PhD or a postdoc in the science. And we have here a precious amount of time to be using with a student of biology or postdoc in chemistry. So, I mean, the, 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 the question that this begs is, so what kind of time are we going to spend on what sorts of communication skills? Um, how is this going to look? Absolutely. And I will say that I have actually written on my blog and in a few other places about how I sometimes get very skeptical about the idea that we, we have to train students in everything. And... I am 100% aware of the problems of that, of we have to train them in. And I've created a laundry list of places where I had found people specifically saying, we should train students in. And it was a list of 20 or 30 things. And of course, that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, I think that one way around that to sort of cut that Gordian knot, so to speak, is... I would really like to see academics value experts in other fields and work with them more frequently. So in my particular case, I've 
created you know resources for people to start thinking about uh, ways to create graphics for posters and so forth because I thought that was a format that was very underserved. But I absolutely recognize that a science degree should not also be a graphic design degree. You're not going to get to the same level of experience or expertise. Not everybody is going to be able to achieve that or the many other things that we are asking students to do. And one thing that I would like to see is I would really like to see a lot more uh, researchers think about, well, maybe you could collaborate with somebody who actually is trained in graphic design to create maybe your slides, posters, uh, data visualizations, those sorts of things. Because right now, I think that this is one of the problems that you know academics are expected to be one-person shows. We are expected to be able to do the writing, run the experiments, create the slides, create the posters, give the talks, give the interviews, and, 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 you know, be ethicists and be budget managers and all of these other things. And I think that particularly for posters, that is something which is like, you know, you could get some help. And unfortunately, I just think that we are in a state where primarily because of the advent of computers has given us so many tools that previously would be only available to niche professionals, right? So now we have cameras that would have at one point been pretty much the reserve of professional filmmakers. And now they're in my laptop. Right. So suddenly it's like, well, maybe you should be doing video recordings or something like that. You know, we have the ability to have how many fonts for our typefaces, you know, are at our fingertips. So the fact that we now have these amazing personal computers, which have so many tools that previously were limited to, um, were so difficult and so expensive that only a niche realm of professionals had them. And now we're expected to master all of them, which is, I think, inherently a silly, uh, a silly goal. We're not going to be able to reach that. Now, in some of these core cases like communication, I think that it's useful to know at least some basics of, say, well, what are things to avoid in graphic design, in data visualization, and so forth? Um, but I certainly think that, and I'm aware of the fact that, no, we shouldn't expect everyone to perform at a high level for everything. And it is completely sensible to primarily continue to focus on content and I would like to, as I said, I would like to see us value expertise in other areas like graphic design, editing, and and so forth. Because I, I think that there's a tendency for academics to think that, oh, those are easy. Anyone can do them. And that's not true. Yeah, I mean, as you make very clear, they're having the tools to do them and using the tools, you know, are two separate things. And I, I, I love, I love this idea, this net next natural step, as I would really call it, of, you know, value expertise, collaborate. It, it's what's going on anyway, and nearly any study that's being performed at the moment. I mean, look how many hands are involved. Uh, have you seen a you know, research article in the biological sciences that had fewer than four people on it, you know, I mean, <laughs> they, I write they, papers with fewer than four people. Okay. All right. <laughs> that's well, just, it's, that's it's, just me. I, I am, I know that I am against the grain in that regard. I, and that, uh, the vast majority of people like to work with big teams and you can do more things with big teams. Um, and I know that I'm an anomaly in that regard. Um, but yeah, and, certainly, and, and, and I mean, in the, in the, and and the collaborative side of of science is 
is really just expanding, you know? I mean, as you've said, I mean, it's a bit of an anomaly to be, and, and even, you know, for some fields to be working with, you know, two other people, you know, two or three other people, which would still even describe you uh, outside of the sciences would be crazy. You know, that'd be like a huge team, <laughs> you know, but for the sciences, for the sciences, it's small. I, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I really appreciate this idea that um, let's also collaborate elsewhere. Um, I have this pet idea that I've been carrying around with me for a while, and you seem to be speaking directly to it. The idea of an embedded editor. And you could also just have a embedded graphic artist. You know, I mean, these people who are there from the start, you know, intelligent people who know how to communicate and they're on the project. I have been fortunate enough to be in a couple of departments that had things like um, staff photographers and they're so valuable. And I think that some of the best works that I've seen, um, I've seen a few cases of academic conference posters that really stood out. And I asked people, um, so this is really nice. How did you do this? And I remember in one case, it was somebody who said, oh, well, I worked with um, a graphic designer who does museum displays. Um, and so it's certainly not unknown, but by and large, for particularly for conference posters, which are a very demanding and very challenging format. Quite often, they are the, something which are given to the people who have the least experience. It's it's traditionally or frequently given to the student who hasn't mastered, never mind graphic design, but just is still in the process of learning academic writing and communication more generally. It, it, you know, so we give the hardest task to the person with the least experience. Never mind being able to reach out to, oh, do we have you know somebody else in our on our campus who could work with me on the graphic design in say an art department or graphic design department? And as I said, I've seen a few collaborations like that, and they usually look very, very good. You know, you get good results out of that. That that brings us solidly to the book. I think we can leave the abstract level a little bit behind us now. And 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 what I would really appreciate, as you do also in the book, is take us briefly to a poster conference, a poster session. Um, because some of our listeners won't have gone. Some of our student listeners, as you've just been referring to, might need to go soon and haven't been yet. Um, what gets done there? What's it like? Who goes there? With which purposes in mind? Maybe even also what's happening now during the pandemic? Yes, absolutely. It's clear that the last couple of years have seen a dramatic shift for conferences. And right now, we're just at the point where this coming year, I think, is going to be very interesting because we will have some new students who will maybe have been to a conference, but maybe they've only been to an online conference. They've never been to a face-to-face -face conference. And uh, even then, the issue of how much of is there going to be face-to-face, -face, what's that experience going to be like, is still very much in flux. So the picture that I'm going to paint is primarily one which was drawn more from the before days, you know, of 2019 of what a conference and poster session would be like. Uh, so academic conferences vary tremendously in size from maybe dozens to hundreds of people all the way up to tens of thousands of people. The largest academic conferences that I know of are the American Geophysical Union and the Society for Neuroscience, which are between 20 and 30,000 attendees. Because of the size of those larger meetings, there's no way that everybody's giving a oral presentation. <laughs> there is just no way to manage that. So because of that, particularly at those large meetings, there are poster sessions where people are able to present their work as a piece of paper, on a, on a piece of paper. And typically the way that a poster session will go, let's say for one of the big meetings like the Society for Neuroscience, is that they will set up poster boards. 
you will have a poster session, which will run a certain amount of time. At, say, the Society for Neuroscience, there are two sessions a day. And at lunchtime, everybody takes down their posters, and then the next batch goes in. And at the big meetings, they are in big convention centers. There's typically only a few venues that can are big enough to hold them because they require so much space for the posters. And so you walk into a convention center and you will see row after row after row after row after row after row of posters. And it looks like they could be building a Saturn V rocket in this building. You know, it's, it's an enormous space. And so they are organized, of course, by session and theme and so forth, so that you are able to find the things that are most relevant, and there's that word again, to you, um, so that you don't just have to wander around blindly hoping that you will find something that is related to your own research interests. So they are uh, grouped together by theme and so forth. So the... Obviously, with so many people, it can be a very loud, very distracting kind of environment. And once you find sort of the, the session that you're interested in, uh, the topics that you're interested in, hopefully there's somebody there at the poster that you can have a discussion with. If not, maybe somebody has just stepped away. Hopefully the poster is self-contained enough that you can look at it and understand what the presenters were trying to do. Um, it's much more fun when the presenter is there, though, because then you can actually have a conversation. And because it is that uh, situation where you, the presenter is right there and face-to-face, -face, you can really have the opportunity for a dialogue um, as compared to a... PowerPoint talk where, yes, there's questions at the end, but that question time is really limited because you have to go on to the next talk and so forth. So really a PowerPoint talk is going to be a monologue. It is a one-way push of information. Whereas with a poster session, you can really have that back and forth and you can really you know, have that sort of deeper dive into a discussion with the presenter and say, did you think about this? I don't understand this. Can you clarify? And I think that is one of the things that is really lovely about a poster session is the, its conversational nature. And, and that's so interesting to me, somebody who's spent so much time on working on research articles or PhDs that... I mean, are so much not what you've just described. <laughs> I mean, uh, this it's a very interesting form of doing science, these poster sessions, because, I mean, it, it brings so much of the formality of, say, the written format to bear in a very interpersonal situation. So, I mean, the, the metaphor that we often use when we talk about um, writing in science is it's a conversation. And, and what you've just said is ideally it, it is a conversation. <laughs> it is a literal conversation rather than a figurative conversation, or it's a real-time conversation rather than a conversation that takes place over the span of years or decades. And there are those some similarities here for sure um, between the written format and the visual format. I do want to explore some of your uh, visual points as well. Um, we're not necessarily in the optimum medium for that, but but we'll do. We'll do for sure. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me is uh, so the, the field that opens up, the conference floor that opens up before somebody. I mean, you talked about a Saturn V rocket being put together. I mean, you just got this, you know, row after row, as you emphasized, uh, that, that, that's like a visualization of what communication in science is like anyway. I mean, just do any search combination, you know, put together seven terms and row after row or page after page of results come. So, I mean, in that sense, you've got the same sort of communicative situation. We get back to that keyword relevance. For instance, one of your figures, which talked about, okay, 
a viewer, ideally, how much time do they want to spend at a poster? And I think it was like the majority, I mean, the vast majority were thinking somewhere between five and six minutes, which to me was like a physical form of the abstract, right? Yes. And because you're in a situation where there is so much to see, this makes sense, right? Again, people want to be efficient. When you're at a conference, the whole idea is you want to talk to people, you want to see what they're doing, but the whole idea is to see more things. That is one of the joys of the conference, that you can really have this intense opportunity to see a lot of things very quickly. So it makes sense that if you have a limited time for a poster session, which they typically are, it's unusual that the posters are up the entire meeting. Sometimes they are, but there might only be a limited time to meet with the presenter, like in that kind of um, structured way. So, of course, if there are hundreds of posters, never mind thousands, and limited time, well, of course, you are going to be trying to go, well, I don't want to spend half an hour talking to somebody if I only have a two-hour poster session. <laughs> then I'm only going to see four posters. So people really are looking for something which is going to be uh, an opportunity for them to get the gist of something. And then if they need to, because you have the presenter right there, again, you have that ability to ask those very pointed questions um, to find what is the specific thing that you are after? Uh, which I think, again, can make it a very efficient form of communication, again, compared to a conference talk, which are typically 15 minutes because you may not be sitting at that talk. It's like, I know this, I know this, I know this. I just want to see slide 12 which has the new thing that is of interest to me. And you might have to sit through 10 minutes of other stuff just to see that one slide, which is the absolutely relevant thing that you came to that talk for. But at a poster, you can just say, hey, I see you have this figure here. This is really interesting to me. Can you explain it? And you might be able to get that thing that you want in just a couple of minutes if you're able to ask that question directly to the presenter. And and this is this is really gold, I think, for people who are beginning to communicate science because it's it really bears emphasizing this efficiency that you keep uh, referring to in all forms of communication. Because uh, as you make so apparent, uh, if you're listening to that 15 minute talk, yeah, or if you've got the entire poster in front of you and there's five or six other people milling about, it, you you have in mind a piece of information that you need. I'm talking about the viewer or the listener here, and 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 the same thing is true for the reader. And I think the misconception that builds up in students' minds or early career researchers' minds because they read so thoroughly, yeah, they're learning as well at the same time, that they'll assume the same sort of behavior on the other end. And, and as people specialize, they don't read as thoroughly, they don't look as thoroughly, they want that one piece of information. And you have to adapt your communication to that. Absolutely. And... I think that there's a tendency, particularly among not just early career researchers, but anytime you're very early on in a project, is that there's a tendency to, as I sometimes call it, democratize data. You want to have all the data be important. You think everything's important, what you're just at the start of a project, right? It's sometimes only after you've been able to sit with something for a while, and maybe you get a little more experience that you're able to start realizing, of all the stuff that I've done, this part right here, this is the thing that is really the key finding or the key result. This is going to be the thing that other people are going to be the most interested in. Um, and so I think that this is something which um, is a skill, sort of being able to um, figure out what are the most critical things in terms of the what I think the project is and what are most likely going to be the things that are critical for other people as well. What is going to be the thing that will um, 
be the most valuable for other members of my community. That's a wonderful qualification there. I mean, it's not just students and early career researchers. It's early on in the project. It's it's naturalizing all of the extraneous details, the details that prove extraneous when you get to the point of what you found. And I, su- I suppose that is the communicator's, you know, gift or skill or the thing that they learn <laughs> is to put that in the form, whether it's visually or in a speech or written, that other people recognize, that they, they, they see off of that the details that matter. It's that though message that gets through. And I think that for those details matter in some degree. So quite often in science, you know, you have situations where, well, can you rule out this? And it's, you have to do some other experiment. And so a lot of times those supporting details, you have to show some of those details in some way, but there's really a trick and a skill to again, recognize what's the central finding, the main point, and which is a footnote, so to speak, which is important, but not as important in terms of the overall thing that I am attempting to demonstrate or communicate. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's let's get a little bit more into the communication, as I've been promising uh, our <laughs> listeners. Um, some of the details. Um, obviously, we can't do justice uh, to the. And the book is beautifully designed, and that's that's probably to be expected. Uh, wonderful illustrations of what you're talking about. It becomes very clear, even to somebody here who's not a scientist and not going to be producing these things, what what matters. For instance, maybe I'll just start there. I remember, and I take away from the book, make a grid. <laughs> this, <laughs> yes. this, this is clearly very important. Um, could you maybe walk us through some of the, let's say, framework issues involved in the visual of a poster that really are, you know, essential, like make a grid. Academics are very skilled readers. So this is why we're academics, right? We are the people who love books and words and all of those kinds of things. So typically when you are at a Uh, academic conference, you are dealing with a bunch of people who are skilled readers. And as a reader of English, there are certain things that you have been trained to do. So you know that when you see a line of text that you read it from left to right, and you read from top to bottom. That sounds trivial, right? And we kind of forget that that is completely arbitrary and that other languages go in other directions, right? You can have languages that go in columns. You have languages that read right to left. But it's kind of amazing that even though there are people who are very skilled readers of English, that that idea of you start in the upper left, you end in the lower right, And there's a logical progression that you will typically follow through a page or a newspaper, whatever it happens to be, that you start in one place and you end in the other, and maybe you go across in rows, or maybe you go up and down in columns. But an amazing number of poster creators can't seem to do either one of those things. And there's... And they just sort of go in very strange directions. Even if they start in the upper left and end in the lower right, the pattern that you take along the page sort of takes this bizarre zigzag in a lot of cases. Um, And this is one of the reasons why uh, having a layout of a grid of, okay, set up columns, set up rows, Whichever one you do, pick it and be consistent with it. That helps a reader who, again, has been trained and learned to expect certain things 
uh, certain patterns, that is going to help them follow through and not get lost on the poster. Again, making it easier for the reader so that their relevance stays high to them. That's one for instance of uh, something that seems is easy to say, but in practice, many people don't put that into to effect because for whatever reason, because they're not dealing with a single piece of text, they're dealing with multiple blocks of text. And for some reason, that just seems to create a short circuit in people's brains. And they just sort of forget all the things that they learned about how people read at that point. So that's one for instance. Yeah, and you make also a, a great point, which resonates again with um, reading, say, articles and then being able to turn around and write them or to write a thesis. I mean, just because uh, you've acquired the expertise in being a reader of designed objects, if we might, if we might just sort of abstract it that way, doesn't make you immediately into the expert design maker. Um, this, this, this is the. You know, uh, it, it even carries over into so many other areas. I mean, fluency in a language doesn't make you an automatically good translator, right? I mean, there is added on skills that come to some of these things. And and uh, th th that's the value of your, your, your book and your work that um, you point out these things that have become automatic for so many of us. Yes, and I think that the there's so many of these things that are easy to point out and recognize, uh, but they are very definitely difficult to implement. And I say that, again, I was trained as a scientist, and I, I have to say I really hesitated in writing a book about design and I created, you know, most of the illustrations in my book and, and so forth. And I really hesitated because I thought, oh, man, I'm really setting myself up to get it from the graphic designers. Because I, as uh, Clint Eastwood once said, a man's got to know his limitations. And I recognize my limitations as a, a designer. Um, but I, I think that I've gotten to the point where I'm able to at least point out some things that people should do and because i can i'm pretty good i think at recognizing certain kinds of, of flaws and uh, ways to improve things even though it's difficult for me myself to put some of these things into practice it, it as we've said a few times you know it is very much a skill that you have to practice in creating these and it can be a very different skill from um reviewing or critiquing them um although obviously those two things are related. Um, and it is helpful to be able to look at something and go, uh, this doesn't work, even if it would be a struggle to say, okay, but what is the way that it is going to work? Um, but that's like so much of reviewing something, right? An editor gets back a comment. It's like, oh, this is vague. It's like, well, can you help me make it less vague? It's like, well, that's hard. It's like, well, right, it's, right. I mean, um, I think many of the details are indeed best uh, left to the book. The, the talk that you give of figures to colors, for example, I found really um, enlightening. Text and type, um, the, one, <laughs> the wonderful uh, uh, illustration you give of somebody who took a research article and turned it literally into a poster <laughs> as a don't do this um there is there is a lot in the book uh, for the for the um person who really wants to make something visual what i also liked though was that you talk about okay this is also a as we were saying before a interpersonal interaction right so you need you need to be ready for questions you need to be ready to be quick also in your answers you also talk about the script or the guided tour which some viewers will expect of you could could you perhaps expand a little bit on that scenario of the poster absolutely this is one of my favorite things to do to poor students is i will walk up to their poster and just say tell me what's to learn here and just give them the opportunity to um go through and talk about their project. And so typically in a poster session, a lot of people expect that. They, 
as an audience member. They will expect you to sort of have a prepared walkthrough of the poster because, again, as academics, we are comfortable with words, but again, getting back to the theme of efficiency, reading is hard. And I sometimes think that we forget that even as academics, reading is is hard and it can be very helpful to have somebody talk to us. That is something which is um, more natural and easier, more social. <coughs> Pardon me. So it is very, very common for presenters to have a, a sort of set tour of this was my problem, here's how I approached it, here's what I found. And audience members typically expect that sort of uh, somebody to have that very quick summary so that then you can go into, if you want, some of those more precise, detailed questions. Yeah, I mean, these are these are just fantastic tips for people heading into poster sessions. I mean, keep the answers short, get to the information, have your talk ready because you might be expected to give one ad hoc um, and all of the wonderful work in the book visually that, that um, I entirely encourage listeners to go out and, and, and see for themselves. And I will say that I really tried to write this book with the understanding that most of the readers, most of the people who will want this book, I would think, are going to be people who are fairly early on in their academic career and who've maybe been to a conference but maybe haven't presented or have maybe done only uh, a single poster. And although I do have other things in the book for people who are more experienced, so there's actually a section on uh, for conference organizers. Uh, so the, obviously, if you're organizing a poster session, you have been around for a little while. But most of the book sort of assumes that you haven't done this a lot before. It is really meant as an introduction to um some of the elements that you have to go into in your first few conferences. And the the thing that I kept thinking as I was reading it was that, yes, poster sessions are important. You've definitely picked up a topic that is, you know, central to what goes on in science. But I thought, I mean, this could easily be followed up and some of this could be directly applied to uh, the multimodal article. Right. Think about how many graphics are inside of a research article. Audiovisual is even entering it now. Um, and of course, slide presentations. If you think of, you know, the research group, you know, the monthly meeting where progress reports are given, um, it, you could take over much of what we've just uh, talked about as a poster, which is, you know, typically a, a stationary type object and bring it over into PowerPoint or other slide um, apps. Absolutely. And that was something that I realized working through the book is that a poster is kind of all of academia in a microcosm in a weird way. It's almost like a ship in a bottle. It's like a little miniature thing where, okay, I have to work with text, work with a work with data, work with graphs, communicate, converse, do all of these things on a single page for a few hours. And it's, as I said before, it is a very challenging format, typically done by people who are early in their career. For so many people, a poster presentation is their first line in their CV. It's their first entry into an academic career. And if somebody can nail a poster, and the poster session and give a really excellent poster from the design to the presentation to everything. You've got a lot of the skills that are going to serve you well throughout much of the rest of your academic career. Uh, because as you say, all of the things that you learn in those posters when you're sort of just starting out and you're experienced and you get told by your boss, hey, we're going to a conference, make a poster. That's going to be something that you're going to be able to use many times over. There's two 
key words that I'd perhaps like to wrap up our conversation on, and and, and they are very central to what um, your book is about, design. I'd like to maybe unpack that word a little bit. And part of design is narrative. And narrative is a word I love exploring with all of my guests because especially in the sciences, it's a it's a bit of a fraught topic. Um, maybe, maybe we'll just kick off there um, with and, and move it up to design from from there. I mean, you, you give us a, a chapter on narrative thinking and, and you say some things that really I, I'm glad have been said now because I'm always trying to get my head around this idea of, okay, well, what is story and research? And, and you tell us that narrative is more general than storytelling, which immediately I found helpful. And you define it in the most basic of terms, a series of events that occurs in solving a problem. So, I mean, basically talking about a hypothesis plus a study design, which to me was, you know, you, you, you in a sense solved some of the problem that people have when it comes to narrative thinking, because yes, it's intentional. Yes, it is planned, but it's not a foregone conclusion and it's not teleological, right? We're not thinking of the end point is the aim. That's not science, right? The starting point is the aim. The starting point is testable statement with a robust plan to do the testing. The end point is really just leading to further starting points, isn't it? Yes. And I just want to give credit where it's due that that phrasing that you uh, picked up on of narrative as a series of events that occur while solving a problem is not something that I arrived at at my own. That is uh, the thinking of Randy Olson, um, biologist turned filmmaker turned author and educator, um, who really deeply influenced a lot of the thinking that I have about narrative. But I do want to say, you did mention briefly storytelling. And I think that I talk about narrative so much because I had an experience while teaching communication to undergraduate students and I gave them an exercise where they read two opinion pieces about storytelling in science. One piece said, we should do more of it. And the other article said, no, we shouldn't. And normally when I give this kind of assignment to students, I get a mix of reactions and it was stunning to me because every single student said, nope, no storytelling in science because they associated that word with fiction. And they said, science is about the truth. Storytelling is for kids. And so I stopped talking about story immediately after grading that assignment because it was so clear to me that for so many people, and these were advanced undergraduates. So these were not people who were you know, outside of science, but they were still early on in their scientific training. But they had such a strong reaction to that word storytelling that I just realized narrative doesn't set off the alarm bells for a lot of people that storytelling does because storytelling for so many people is the opposite of science or the opposite of research. And it genuinely isn't. But trying to convince people of that is an enormous uphill battle. But when you say narrative, the alarm bells don't go off and people are more receptive to the idea of, okay, you have to have a series of events. It can't just be a bunch of disconnected facts. You have a problem. What's the solution to that problem? What's the, what are the way things are? What is your problem? What's the outcome of that problem? Um, is such a helpful way to structure um, posters, talks, research papers, and so forth. That is just the way that we um, understand the world, I think. Yeah, no. Um, it, it, so many people um, look at it that way and use story more often than narrative. And I agree, narrative has that... Um, you know, that Latinate sound to it. Yeah, it's, it must be a technical term. <laughs> Sounds classy. Right? Storytelling, it, it, anybody can do that, but narrative. Now, there, right. now we're talking. That's I a real skill. It, yeah. And I, I also wonder if it isn't even worth um, going a step further and talking about, say, like something like sequence. So what's the sequence of your study? Yeah. How, what is the sequence yes, of events although here? I think you know, that just, in just some a, ways, the sequence is tricky because people may think that means chronological and mm. quite often what is logical in a narrative isn't necessarily 
a chronological telling. Uh, it, you know, quite often, you know, when you're doing research, right, there, a scientific paper is not a diary. It doesn't track the things that you did in the order that you did them, because quite often you do one experiment and then you figure out, oh, I have to do this other experiment and logically I should have done that first or you need this to understand that. And so there's a chronological sequence of events which does not necessarily have to translate into your narrative uh, that you communicate to others. That's good. That's really good. I, I'm going to try out a few other words on you now that <laughs> now that I have you. Um, you also talk, and this is very much uh, uh, to the visual side of things here about plotting, plotting graphs. What about oh yes, sort yes, of, yes. What about what about re you know resuscitating the word from um, you know our English classes, the plot, the plot of a story. I mean. It, in literary studies, the basic distinction is the story is the sequence, as as you were just saying. Yeah, the chronological order of events. The plot is the order in which the author has put it. So, I mean, could we revive that word, bring it back, talk about plots? Ooh, now that's interesting. Now, obviously, you know, words can have multiple meanings, and plot is certainly one of those, right? Um, and so, when I talk about plotting a graph, I certainly was not using that word in the sense of the plot of a novel or anything else like that. And obviously, you can think of a garden plot, and that word has so many different meanings. But I like that you bring that together with the idea of uh, a plot in the graphic sense is something that can also convey a plot in a narrative sense as well. And there is definitely, for people who are specialists in data visualization, they will also talk about storytelling with a graph or with an image or with a visual. And that is not something I talk a lot about in the book, but certainly there are things that you can do with that. So if you see a graph, there are ways to highlight important data. Um, so what's the most important thing? Is it the trend line or is it the scatter? Is it the variation? Um, and there's different ways to emphasize that. Is the highest point on your line graph what you're, is really interesting to you or is it the lowest point? Um, and there is ways to, you know, high, if you're really wanting to draw attention to, this was the highest ever. You know, label that on the graph and, you know, draw an arrow to it and put it in a box, whatever it is that you need. Um, and I think that that is a, a way that you can tie the plot in a graphic sense together with a plot in the narrative sense. One last word, just while we're having word, <laughs> sure. bandying words about. Uh, I feel like I'm word... doing a psychological test here. Uh, <laughs> oh, anchor, <laughs> up, down, black, white. <laughs> okay, logic. <laughs> what, what, what jumps to your mind when I say logic? The logic of your paper. What is the logic of your study? Does 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 this help at all? Uh, I think that with the moment that you talk about oh, logic, um, again, there's a lot going on in in that phrase. Now, in terms of the logic of a study, or are we thinking about like the logic of uh, like a poster or layout? Um, because certainly what we've addressed this a little bit before with a poster, the logic is primarily set by our expectations of reading. Now with a study, um, there's also a logic. And honestly, I think that the overarching logic is one which is to some degree detrimental for posters because uh, the overarching logic that people fall back onto is the logic laid out in academic journal articles, which is that introduction, methods, results, discussion, the IMRAD format, um, which is a very good, sensible, dare I say it, logical format. Um, and it, but it's certainly not the only thing. And I see that so often with so many posters, um, people want to take that format and translate it 
or put it on the poster pretty much exactly. And there's no reason to necessarily. Um, so I think that the, that, uh, academic journal article logic that, because that is an absolutely logical structure. Um, the introduction, what is the state of affairs? What is the problem? The methods, how do we go about solving that problem? The results, here's the information that we achieved and that we need to solve that problem. And then the discussion, here is the resolution to the problem. That is a very logical sequence of events. Um, and I can see why so many people want to put that on their, their poster. Um, but again, I don't think that is the only logical way to present information. And uh, in many cases, um, you can achieve something which is coherent and logical that doesn't necessarily have that particular structure. Um, but definitely there, there has to be some sort of underlying logic to, you know, any sort of communication of a research project. Mm, yeah. And that brings us to our last word, which uh, I'm, not, I'm not testing you anymore, <laughs> but that is design. That is design. Yes. Um, again, again, one of these words that um, can get a bad rap, um, yes. can be misunderstood, can sound artsy to people. Yes, that and is absolutely the problem is that people think it's making things look pretty and it's not. Yeah. And, and, and what I... And, and it actually is one of those, I mean, you talk about a study design, that's quite widespread. And I find it funny then that it doesn't get that understood as also something that can be applied to the visual. I see it as a possible way of looking at, uh, um, you know, the narrative as well. It's good to have a few words probably to work on this level and to say, okay, so what is the design of your paper? Yeah, I mean, maybe something like that. But in any case, the, the point that I wanted to make there, and I'm, I'm very interested to, what, to hear what you have to say is that, um, of course, format and and, and format formalized genres are the norm in science. Despite all of the freedom that you show you have on a poster, a poster is formalized. A research article is formalized. And I, I encounter many students who at first feel like, well, then how am I supposed to do original work? Or even more practically minded uh, students who ask, okay, well, if my article or my poster looks like a hundred others, how am I going to draw any attention um, to what it is that I'm doing? And and for me, there seems to be in that a sort of misconception of the originality and the creativity that is in the sciences, because those two things are very much there. Because, I mean, with the creativity and originality that you have in science, it is the communication, the communication, the communication of your ideas. That is the key, in my opinion, to the to the uh, creativity that's a part of it, anyway, that's involved. Because, I mean, any form, the IMRAD that you referred to, can, you know, facilitate that communication. You can produce clearer results when you are fulfilling expectations that are there because of the formalized genre that you're working from. Yes, absolutely. And, you know... There's the fact that the uh, that there are these sort of expectations um, is not necessary. Does not have to be constraining, right? Um, and again, we've been talking about narrative and storytelling, and you know there are whole genres that have particular conventions, and people go back to them again and again and again. Uh, you know, you could argue that every romance novel has essentially the same kind of plot. Every detective novel has similar kinds of plots, right? Where you expect certain things to happen in certain orders, um, and yet people haven't stopped creating new ones because there's always new and interesting twists that you can put onto these things. Um, and it becomes all about the details, right? So in a detective no novel, there was a murder. You have to solve it. Who's the murderer? Well, of course, there's a huge difference between different kinds of detective novels, whether it's Sherlock Holmes or Miss Marple or Mickey Spillane, right? It's all about the details. And similarly, if you're thinking about, um, well, I'm stuck with this MRAD format or I'm stuck with this three-column poster layout, well, yeah, but you can distinguish it in the details, right? Um, 
And that's going to be the thing that will set it apart and make it memorable are your attention to those details within that larger overarching structure that you're maybe stuck with a little bit. Yeah. And it's also recognizing that that you can functionalize that, that you can work with those expectations. I mean, you know, it's the glass half full, half empty kind of a view. (laughs) You know, if you look at an IMRAD structure and think, I've got no wiggle room, you can also look at an IMRAD structure and I know exactly where to put what I want to say. Yes. It's a template. And people, I, I sort of in the book talk about poster design templates. And I sort of say, try not to use those because a lot of those are bad, but I absolutely understand why people want templates because to go back to the start of the conversation, templates are efficient. It is helpful and it is a better use of your time if you do not have to reinvent the wheel every single time. And so, um, the issue sort of becomes when templates become too specific or too specified, um, which is a problem with a lot of poster templates. But just that general idea of, okay, here's a structure that you can work with that is pretty robust, and you really have to work hard to screw it up. So that introduction method results discussion format for an academic paper just kind of works. And it's really hard to screw it up. If you have things in that structure and you kind of follow it, somebody else is going to be able to basically understand what you've done. On a poster, if you have a three-column layout, you're probably not going to screw it up and somebody's not going to get lost reading the poster. Um, And so that as a starting point can be a great time saver and so many people are, again, looking to be efficient in the way that they're doing things, or as we said before, use the least effort. Well, I think that's probably the best word uh, to end on, not use the least effort, but the efficient. That is that is certainly the call word of our uh, interview here. Thank you very much, Zen. That is Zen Fox and his book, Better Posters, Plan, Design, and Present, an academic poster, is out with Pelagic Publishing. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Zen. Goodbye. Thank you again. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.